So you're reading an article online when you get an instant message with a link to a funny photo, which of course you have to share. And now you're reading your Facebook news wall, which sends you to a video of a panda bear attacking a kid. And now you're reading Wikipedia to learn everything you can about the violent behavior of panda bears. And this is what three minutes on the internet can be like. We live like this all the time, and it has to have some kind of effect on us. The net is making us more superficial as thinkers. That is Nicholas Carr. He is the author of The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. To understand this whole thing better, we need to go way back in time to, say, like, the prehistoric age. You wanted to know everything going on around you, because the more you knew about your surroundings, the less likely you were to get attacked by a predator. And there's even evidence that our brains release some dopamine, pleasure-producing uh, neurotransmitter chemical, to reward us for seeking out and finding new information. So getting distracted felt good and helped us stay alive. But the problem is that nowadays, predators aren't much of an issue, but we still have the same brains. And also, there's the internet, which is... It's an incredibly information-rich environment uh, that the net creates for us, and that's why we use it so much. I, I mean, sounds, pictures, words, text. And what this tends to do is, is promote a sort of compulsive behavior, which we're constantly checking our smartphone, constantly glancing at our email inbox. We're kind of living in this perpetual state of distraction and interruption. Which is dangerous, because... That mode of thinking crowds out the more contemplative, calmer modes of thinking. And that focused, calm thinking is actually how we learn. It's a process called memory consolidation. And that means the transfer of information from our short-term working memory to our long-term memory. And it's through moving information from your working memory to your long-term memory that you create connections between that information and everything else you know. So you've got this awesome life-changing piece of information in your short-term memory, but then you hear that email ding and poof, there it goes. That email takes its place and you never get a chance to learn anything, all because of one distraction. So attention is the key, and if we lose control of our attention or are constantly dividing our attention, uh, then we don't really enjoy that consolidation process. But I can hear it now. Someone out there is saying, uh, what does learning matter if all the information in the world is just a Google search away? Well... Um, that is kind of shortchanging our intellects. If that's the way you're using your mind, just kind of searching very quickly and finding information and then forgetting it very quickly, you're never building knowledge. You're simply, you're thinking like a computer. Which means that our very humanity is at stake. And it would be a shame if we all got assimilated because, well, humanity is pretty neat. And we live in an interesting time where if we look in the mirror, if we take some time to reflect, which that opening video shows we rarely do, we say, boy, am I becoming everything I want? Why am I still struggling with some of the same things I struggled with five years ago or ten years ago? Or, or why am I still struggling with things that, that my, my father struggled? I said I didn't want to be like that or, or I didn't want to worry like my mom. And yet I'm still practicing those things. And we do we kind of stop and stare and say, how, how do I change? How do I upgrade those aspects of my life? How do I upgrade the habits of my life? In our series, Smart Book, we're looking at how the Bible was given by God as a source of wisdom to help upgrade us and to help bring freedom in our life and to bring changes to our life. Yet there's been an interesting revolution that's occurred in history. And one of those revolutions is called the Information Revolution. 
It was a fundamental shift from wisdom to information. Information is the ability to get facts and spit facts back out. You can Google anything, find anything. But with that, we've toned down, pushed away, found irrelevant wisdom. Be it the wisdom of our parents and grandparents, who though they may not Google as fast as we did, or we can't Google as fast as our grandkids want us to, there's experienced wisdom that's come from scars that itch and problems that have occurred and situations we've been in. In the same way, the Bible was an ancient source of wisdom that said, even in a technological age, there are access to timeless truths practiced through, from generations of people that will help you navigate life. I think for many people, we don't see the Bible as a source of ancient wisdom, a smart book. We see it as a dusty book, an irrelevant book, a judgmental book. And so today I want to try and look at how the Bible specifically was designed by God to be a smart book that would offer wisdom throughout the generations. To do that, I want to tell you a story that uh, I told a couple years ago, but it's such a powerful story about Emile Caliette. He was a philosopher, and he actually got uh, drafted into World War I. In World War I, he thought he had it figured out at age 22. You know, he knew his philosophy, he knew his worldview, somewhere between nihilism and Buddhism was, was kind of his approach to life. But in the horrors of war, in the trenches of difficulty, his best friend standing next to him popped his head up and he had his son get shot, and his son, his best friend get shot right next to him. And the trauma of that and the shock of that. What he realized in that moment, in the reflection of that moment, is he needed access to some source of wisdom, some kind of a, a book, he called it, that would read me to help me figure out how life works, figure out what's going on here. And that's how he articulated. He grew up in a family that weren't religious at all. He said, I need a book that could read me. So coming out of the war, he began to write his own book because he couldn't find a book that would read him. So what we would do is he'd be inspired by a poem, maybe. And he'd rip out that poem and he'd stick it on page one. Really helped him articulate his fear, articulate the, the challenge he was feeling. And maybe a, a few days later, he's writing a journal, in this particular journal entry that, oh, that is so what I need right now. And, and he would write that in his book. Over the next couple of years, he collected things that inspired him, things that gave voice to his feelings, things that convicted him. And he now had a book, a handwritten book. He said, this will be the book that guides me shapes me and directs me. But then when he came across a new circumstance, a new challenge, he would open up that book and say, oh yeah, I remember a situation like that. And as he read that page, he realized that passage no longer spoke to him. It reminded him of what he was like three years ago or two years ago, but he'd change and he needs something more than what the two-year-old version of himself would say. He was disillusioned that the book he wrote that was supposed to read him didn't offer what he was looking for. Somewhere that he came across a person who was a follower of Jesus who said, have you ever tried reading the Bible? He said, no, I don't need the Bible. I don't want the Bible. It, it's not going to be helpful. He said, I know you've been talking about finding a book that reads you. I, the person said to him, I am a follower of Jesus, and I find this book, some parts are hard to understand, but so much of it, I'll go back to the exact same paragraph different times in my life, and I'll hear different things. He was intrigued by that. So he began for the first time to pick up the Bible. He was reading in the, the Sermon on the Mounts and Gospels. We're okay. Um, uh, and as he was doing that, what he found was that as he's reading through the Gospel, 
he discovered exactly that the same pastor that spoke to him, wow, that's intriguing. I spent my whole life trying to figure that out. Then he'd come back a week later, a month later, a year later, and it was like the book said the same words, but it spoke to him in different ways. So he began to go through that process of seeing there's answers to the problem of evil, there's answers to how, how I work and why I do what I do that I need to tap into. He began to see the Bible as a smart book. And today I want to look at how that happened to a man in history named Daniel. And so Daniel was living during a very challenging time. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire had spread across the whole world. And David, uh, Daniel rather, got kidnapped and captured and taken as a POW from, from Judah and Israel where he was now living in Babylon. And he is going to be surrounded with temptation. He's surrounded with difficulty. And he's going to have to take on the battles of temptations and what are his convictions and what's true with no help, with no assistance... And he's going to find what he memorized from the Bible early on became what shaped his life. And here's the the concept we're going to learn from Daniel today. When it comes to temptation, when it comes to challenge, when it comes to facing life and upgrading your habits, the battle can be won before the battle has begun. That before you enter a situation, you say, hmm, I wonder where my convictions are. You don't wait till you're in battle to make that decision. You don't wait until you're in a situation where when there's someone of the opposite sex who's pouring into you, uh, even relationally, in such a way that you go, huh, how appropriate is it for me to be relationally connected to somebody who's not my spouse? No, you don't wait till you're in the battle to make those decisions. The battle can be won before the battle has begun. You start ahead of time to make those decisions. Before you get into the situation, before you get into a place where you might compromise. And the Bible has such incredible ancient wisdom on how to do exactly that so we can become the kind of people we want to be. So the first thing we're going to look at is a man named Daniel. And Daniel had this ability to create a battle plan. And if we're always pinging around, we don't have time to be thoughtful. We don't create a battle plan before we run into battle. Look what happens here in the passage. It says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself before he got to Babylon. He didn't wait till he got to Babylon and say, huh, wonder how I feel about it. Now, he was a Jewish boy who wanted to eat kosher. Everything in Babylon was not kosher. He was a Jewish boy who felt that, uh, probably 12 or 13 years old, he felt like God was faithful. And because God was faithful, he wanted to be faithful to his future spouse. And so part of saving himself for marriage was because he wanted to be like the God he served. And he wanted to believe God had a spouse for him and that he wanted to be faithful to the spouse he didn't yet know. And so he decided before he got in the situation, before he got into the backseat, before he started dating that person, before he got to Babylon where everything goes, he purposed in his heart not to defile himself before he got to Babylon. The battle can be won over there before the battle has begun. I need to think about my convictions. I need to think about dangers, what uniquely tempts me, what uniquely draws me in the wrong direction. Now, before I go on and apply that for a moment, when you come to the Bible, sometimes you're like, well, Chad, if I read this without you speaking about it, I'd be like, who's Daniel and what's going on? So let me give you a little tool. Um, In each week of the series, we're trying to highlight a different tool. This is something you can download on your iPad that will help you in understanding the Bible. So I'll open my iPad here, and as I do that, um, you'll see I've got an app at the top left called Bible Maps. And so here are the Bible Maps software, top left. You can get that out of your store for free, App Store. You type in Bible Maps, and it pulls up the software. As it pulls it up, I go at the top, this little magnifying glass, and I say, hey, we're studying, Chad mentioned last week, a verse called Daniel. So let's find Daniel, chapter 1. And immediately shows me a map of where stuff is. 
So I'll pull that up so you can see it. And so as you're reading along, you see all the red links are hyperlinks. Well, where is Judah anyway? And sure enough, you see Judah is right here in modern-day Israel. Okay, so that's where Daniel's at. And he gets captured by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Where in the world's Babylon? If I click on Babylon, oh, Babylon's modern-day Iraq and Iran. Okay, so now I know what's going on. So he gets taken from Judah all the way to Babylon. Now I might say, I'm not sure I believe the Bible's true. I'm open to evidence that the Bible might be true. Do you have any evidence? What's so fascinating here is that if you look at the tab right next to Scripture, there's one of a little mountaintop, it gives you, tell you a little bit about the topography of the area. You can zoom on that, see some pictures of the area to kind of picture it in your head. But next to that is a little cracked vase. This is archaeological evidence that supports what the Bible's claiming here. So I'm going to click on that, and you'll see, oh, there's an inscription in Nebuchadnezzar. He's not just somebody uh, who's made up, but he's a real historic figure. So I click there, and it shows me that uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, encryption is kept at a museum. I know exactly where the museum is, and it's actually got an inscription here of exactly Nebuchadnezzar, one of the walls he built. Oh, I didn't realize this is really true. I thought the Bible was just a, a group of allegories or stories. You might say, well, if there's any more evidence, sure. There's another piece and here's a piece that talks about a Cyrus inscription from that time period from Babylon, gives me more information about it, tells me exactly what museum it's in. So if you're exploring the Bible for the first time, you're not sure you believe it, you're not sure how to understand it, Bible Maps is a great way to figure out who's who, to look at some of the modern-day archaeological evidence to support it, and to dig down into that. It also then shows you on the last tab up top what else happened in this area. Well, it turns out a lot of stuff. Jesus is in the area of Judah. What are other things throughout the Bible that occur in that spot? So if that's helpful for you, I find it's very helpful for me in trying to understand the Bible and put it all together. So that's called Bible apps. So now we have Daniel living over in Nebuchadnezzar, and he decides to, to create a battle plan before he gets in the situation. And you look at all the temptations and all the leaders in the Protestant church and Catholic church who seem to be falling all over the place today, and you say, did you have a plan? Did you have a plan before you got into a situation, before you leaned away from your marriage? What are you going to do before you get into that situation? How do you stop from that? They didn't have a plan. And so this ancient wisdom from Daniel is decide ahead of time before you get in a situation. Now, if, if you're tempted by lust, if, that's, if, if you're a typical person in a, in a society that's obsessed with lust, what do you have to protect yourself? Do you have a plan? How many Google filters do you have on? I talked to a friend of mine who said, Chad, I know that if I'm up late at night, past 11 o'clock, that if no one's there, I'm tempted to watch pornography. And so there's a code on our DirecTV and on our Internet that I don't even know the code to. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I gave it to my wife. Because that way, before I get into the situation where I'm tired, where I'm alone, where it's available to me, I, I've made it harder. doesn't mean that I won't do it or find a way around it, but... I've got a plan before I get in the situation to remind myself of that. You need a plan. Whether you struggle with gossip, you know if you go in those circles, you end up in that situation, you're going to end up saying things you don't want to say. And you also know if I don't show up, they're going to gossip about me, right? Because that's what gossips do. If you're not there, you're the one that's being gossiped about. What are you going to do and how you talk about people before you get into the situation? How do we do that? I had a friend I interviewed here several years ago that... Uh, shared away he did that. He decided before he got into any business situations. He said this way. He said, Chad, I decide as a follower of God that I have a policy. That's what he called it. I have a policy. I mean, you have a policy. I have a policy. What's a policy? I don't go to strip clubs. That sounds like a good policy. 
But he decided ahead of time, regardless of the temptation of situation, I don't do that. Well, he was in a business um, meeting in Japan about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and they were closing the final deal. So he went to close the final deal. The partners on the other side, it was a very lucrative offer. He was there with his boss and several colleagues. And the people doing the purchasing said, well, let's, let's finish this deal up tonight. We're going to head to Deja Vu, whatever it's called there. And we're going we're gonna to finish the deal. A lot of pressure. Oh, it's just a few minutes. It's just a couple hours. This is, you know, is going to set our company up for the next fill-in-the-blank. And he turned to his boss and said, I'm not going to be able to do that tonight if that's where we're going. His boss said, what do you mean? We've got to close this thing. He turned to his boss and said, i got a policy. And the policy is, for the sake of myself, for the sake of my marriage, I don't go into those kind of places. I'm certainly tempted to understand it. I understand it's just business, but I can't do it. And there was you know, a tuffle, there was a conversation, but his boss said, all right, well, if you can't, you can't. But he said, had I gone to that situation and have never determined that was one of my lines, one of my things I was not going to do, Sitting there with my boss in a big client, that was not the time to decide where my lines were. That's not the time to decide where your battle lines are. You've got to decide ahead of time. The battle could be won. He said, ultimately, they did get the deal. My boss did respect me. He was a little frustrated by the situation, but he knew I had lines I wouldn't cross. You've got to create a battle plan before you get into battle. Second, you need to, uh, to capture your enemy's battle plans. Now we're going to move to the New Testament, a man named James. This is Jesus' brother. He wants us to help understand how temptation works. Because sometimes we think temptation is out there. It's those things out there. You know, whether you drink too much or, or, or whether you gossip too much, it's out there. You know, you made me do it. You know, if you hadn't said this, I wouldn't have gotten mad. And so it's your fault. It's that thing's fault. It's the circumstance's fault. The Bible has incredible ancient wisdom here. This is the problem is not out there. Whatever the thing is, and there's a thousand things, it actually taps into something in here that's broken. It's something in you that's broken. Here's how James says it. Let no one, when you're tempted, say, I'm being tempted by God. God made me do this. He didn't. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone little philosophy here. Can God do anything? No, he can't do anything. He can only do that which can be done. He's the ultimate source of ultimate reality. Therefore, God can only do what can be done. He can't make a square circle. There's no such thing. God is limited by his own character. He can't not exist. He can't be evil. God is always limited by the ultimate reality of who he is. He's always good. He's always all-knowing. He's always omnipresent. And he cannot be evil. He cannot be unfair. And so that's what James is getting at here. And he goes on to say, real practical now, Uh, nor does God himself tempt anyone. But here's how temptation works. Now, Now, we want to capture the enemy's battle plan. If somebody was trying to destroy you through temptation, here's how they do it. This is ancient wisdom to help you understand how temptation works. Here's how it works. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. Okay. So I have a good desire. Doesn't necessarily even be bad to start. I have a desire. I want appreciation, I want acceptance, I want intimacy. But I'm drawn away from meeting it in a legitimate way to meeting it in an illegitimate way. So I'm drawn away from something that's true by my own desire, and I'm enticed. So I've been drawn away. Next stage, I'm enticed. Mm, Maybe I should try it. Maybe that would meet the need I have. Maybe that, though it's wrong, it'll meet the need that I'm not getting met in another way. He goes on. 
Then when desire is conceived, I've taken another step into it, the desire is conceived. Yes, yes, this is working. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, this is meeting that need. Yeah, I feel some guilt afterwards. Yeah, I feel some shame afterwards. But I'll take this over not getting it met at all. Your desires, you're enticed. And when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin means to miss the mark. I have now missed the mark. Back to that song we listened to. I open and I stop and stare. Why, why did I do that? I said I would never do that. How did I get here? Why am I doing things I said I would never do? And so now it's giving birth. And, and look at how that thing, that habit is giving birth. It's growing up. And it grows from something that seems small. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not, it's, it's containable. It's manageable too. It grows. It grows to the point that you can't contain it and can't manage it. It gives birth to missing the mark. And sin is not just a thing, it's a power. There's a power you've tapped into. You ever met somebody and you're like, wow, when they had that affair, when they got into that situation, they didn't seem like themselves. You ever said that? Because you're not. The Bible describes sin as a power. And you start dabbling with that power long enough, and that power takes over. And you hear, you're like, man, what was I thinking? Well, you weren't. There was a power that you gave access to that begins to capture you. But it took a few steps. First, I had a desire. I got drawn away. Oh, I got enticed. And then I gave birth to a power in my life. And that power grew up. When it's full grown, it got bigger than me. It is hurting me. It is hurting my marriage. It is hurting my circumstance. It's full grown. It's not manageable anymore. It's a monster. And then it produces death. My ability to think straight dies. My ability to feel straight dies. My ability to know how to prioritize. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know I'm giving up on my wife and my kids, but I love this person, this thing. And that thing could be the bottle. That thing could be a relationship. That thing could be a job. We've all got a different thing. And everybody else's thing looks silly, but not our thing. And our thing that has drawn us away is producing death. If it's our job, it's killing our health. We get ulcers all the time. It's killing our marriage. But the thing. But I couldn't live without the thing. And death begins to be produced in the things that we said we were going to prioritize and cherish. Now see, you're not going to Google that. You could Google the verse. But ancient wisdom that's been passed on for, for 2,000 years is, oh, now I understand the, how evil and how temptation is trying to destroy me. The Bible is such a smart book and trying to help you diagnose how this works. And it gives you several things. Let's now extrapolate that into some pieces that comes out of it. Number one, we need to recognize the stages. There are several stages there to temptation. We have a small group of 20-somethings that I've been uh, part of leading for the last uh, four or five months. And we got to hear this powerful interview last week between a husband and wife who were talking about what bugged each other in front of about 500 people. Such an authentic and courageous real conversation in front of a counselor in front of 500 people and one of the things he realized is that before he punched walls and he had a real struggle with his anger before he totally lost it he needed to recognize that before he lost it before he punched and threw things before he modeled behavior he didn't want to model his wife and the counselor tried to help him figure out what's that stage when you're first drawn away and he said I don't know it just happens and his wife said well actually you start biting your fingernails do I? 
And he realized that as he was trying to control himself, that was one of the stages. He began to recognize that. When, when he bite the fingernails, whoa, that's the time we need to listen to each other. That's the time we need to engage. That's the time I need to sort of, the battle can be won before the battle's begun. I need to get nervous and, and lean into my heart at that stage, not the I punched something uh, or threw something stage. What are the stages between where you are and when you give in to whatever it is you give in to? Then recognize what are the desires and needs that are going on. Like I said, the word sin used here, the power here, is meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. And taking the time to ponder, to journal, to write down, to think, the stuff we never do in our culture, you're not going to solve this unless you go, what is the desire that drew me away here? I'm feeling lonely in my marriage. What is it that got me to try and cross the lines financially in my company? Well, I'm feeling unappreciated by this company, and I justified that they owe it to me anyway. Oh, oh, and you become more self-aware so you can see the stages coming before you get to them. Because here's the thing about temptation. It's almost always medication. You're meeting desires and needs. You're medicating it. You know what? I feel lonely. I feel disrespected. I feel hopeless. Let's at least for a minute not think about it. Maybe an hour. Pornography. I don't feel like I'm accepted or wanted uh, in my marriage or I'm feeling lonely as a single. And so at least that for a moment won't reject me. It'll say yes. But it's not the thing that's the problem. There's certainly good things and evil things. But the thing is it's tapping into something that's broken in me, a need or desire. And then to recognize the consequences. Because here's what happens. When you first start in that situation... You don't say, yeah, yeah, if I do this, it's going to produce death in my life. Yeah, this is going to kill my marriage. I'm sure it's going to kill my marriage. Because you ignore the consequences. Because you say, well, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just having lunch with this person. It's just lunch. Bible doesn't say it's wrong to have lunch, is it? Well, no, but is the person you're having lunch with for the social visit um, your spouse? No. But, you know, it's somebody I connected with. It's just lunch. It's just lunch. It's just lunch. Crying out loud. Don't be so legalistic. Well... It might be that having a social call with somebody who's not your spouse leads somewhere. Yeah, maybe for you it doesn't. I would say more times than not it does. So you ought to think about that. What are the consequences of this path if I keep taking this path? It's ancient wisdom. I was reading an uh, article talking about the NFL and how important it is to get the enemy's playbook. That how practical it is in developing your own battle plan when you understand the enemy's battle plan. Tom Brady was uh, bragging at Wes Welker's uh, wedding about New England having the defensive playbook. It didn't shock me because Coach Rex Ryan would give them out like candy anyway. He gave one out to Alabama coach Nick Saban, and I was like, don't you know that Saban and Bill Belichick are pretty good friends? I have a feeling it's going to end up in New England. He says, but most playbooks are very broad. We have 80 defensive formations in a playbook, 30 in a game plan. Then we add six or seven new ones for a given game. Now, it's a credit that the Patriots have been able to get that information. I don't mean to imply it was gathered illegally. To me, it's a sign of a smart team. We're not actively pursuing playbooks, but when they fall in your laps, you study it. Plays like the Titan package, the under-wasp sting, and the under-bee sting. That's it. We're all in the business of gathering information. If I can get someone's blueprint for how they build their offense or defense, of course I'm going to look into it. And here's what was fascinating. Usually the playbooks migrate from team to team when coaches leave for other jobs. For, but for more, valu more valuable than a playbook would be a past game plan. 
used against a specific team, assuming the systems and personnel haven't changed dramatically. He says a playbook is kind of generic. It's helpful, but it's generic. But if you can get a past game plan, how a specific team came after a specific team, it's very helpful. I want you to imagine, whether you believe in evil or not, you certainly have seen people make dumb decisions. And something caused that. What if there was a source of evil, whatever you call it, and it was trying to destroy you? How would you destroy you knowing your unique temptations, weaknesses, and struggles? See, that's the difference between a playbook. Oh, in general, this happens to... Oh, that would be the game plan to destroy me. And when you begin to realize what the unique game plan would be to destroy you, you can go, oh, I've got to do something about this. I recognize when I'm on the road to destruction. I shared last service one of those for me. And it usually starts off that I'm drawn away with something good. Usually the first step isn't a bad one or I wouldn't make it. The good one draws me away. So the last 18 months, I have had a lot of internal stress and turmoil. And part of that stress and turmoil comes from something that's good in me which is I like to manage things. I like to see things coming. I do my best planning when I'm six months or a year ahead on where we're headed message prep. I like to fix stuff. I like to figure stuff out. I feel like no matter how complicated it is, I can eventually find a way to figure out how to get from here to there no matter the obstacle. It's something I love doing. And the more complicated, the better. So 18 months ago, I shifted a whole bunch of my mental energies away from solving making college affordable for my older two which ended up working out, and they graduated college, both of them debt-free, to now all that energy aimed at autism as my son turned nine. And what I realized is that was producing, one, college was a breeze compared to autism. It is so complicated, and there are so many variables, and the variables are just constantly changing. Quinn had his third seizure last week, and now we have to go in this week and hook him up to a machine it's going to duct tape stuff on his head for 24 hours and figure out how we're going to keep him sane this Wednesday. So the game is always changing. The rules are always changing. No one really knows the rules because it changes from county to county, from place to place, and from situation to situation. But inside of me, I said, hey, I can solve anything. If I just have enough time, think about it from the right angle, come at it from a maverick view... But the turmoil I've had has been I haven't been at peace. Now, part of that's the circumstance. But that circumstance drew out of me something good. I like to solve things. And it said, Chad, once you've got a plan in place to solve this, vocationally, relationally, financially, over the next 30 years, in Quinn's life, 30 years, 50 years, 80 years when I'm gone, once you have a plan to solve that, you can be at peace. Sounds ideal. Doesn't sound very livable. But I was drawn into, yeah, yeah, I, maybe I could solve that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, do, I, I, don't, I can't operate well when I don't know where I'm going. But if you pause for a second, you wait a second, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to solve autism? Now, I'm enough of a pragmatist to go, okay, I'm not going to solve it, but I have to have a plan that can manage it. Well, that's smart, right? That's smart wisdom. But, I said, but this temptation was you'll be at peace, you'll have shalom, you'll be able to rest your mind, even if you can't solve it, a plan that will eventually solve it. She can sound smart, but it produced death in me. It produced something that was growing in me that was over, uh, became unable to overcome. 
But I realized I had a lie, which is that I can fix this. I can provide for this. I still want to do what I can do. But at some point, i got to rest in the fact that, oh, God's got to be my provider. God's got to help. I, I don't know the future. I, I can't solve all the variables in this. And God, I want to do the best I can and trust you with the things I can't control and the things I can't handle. And then I was able to still plan, but without all this uncertainty and all of this inner turmoil. And if I was going to destroy me, a fixer, I would give me so much stuff, pile it on, and wear myself out trying to fix everything. That's how I would try and destroy me. So then when I know that, and I recognize that happening around me, I go, oh, I need to be careful. I'm starting to lean into that. I'm starting to fall for that. So we need to create a battle plan, capture the enemy's playbook. What's the unique game plan against you? Then thirdly, you need to craft a backup plan. No matter how good your plan is, I promise you, you will fail. Oh, I said I wasn't gossip, but I did. Oh, I said I wasn't going to give in to pornography. Oh, I did. I said I wasn't going to drink again. I, I did. I said I wasn't going to belittle someone and lose my temper. I did. And this is where the Bible offers such incredible, unique wisdom. Crafting a backup plan says, how do I get back when I failed? Plan A is don't fail. Good luck. It's good. You need to have that plan. It's good to have a plan with convictions. But you need a backup plan, which is, but I know there's going to be times I do. How do I get back here? And my daughter, to get married in a couple months, and so her fiancé has been living with us. And so we wanted to have just some real conversations because as a pastor, I get to talk to a lot of couples who've never had a real conversation about sex and intimacy. And so I asked Sarah, who we've had lots of conversations about this over the years, if uh, her boyfriend would be open, that, her fiancé would be open, that, well, he said he would. I said, well, this is going to be an interesting conversation. And we just had the best conversation for about an hour with my wife and I talking about the realities of the challenges and the awkwardness and the weirdness and the beauty and the passion and the excitement and the temptations and the conversations that happen in marriage, especially in the bedroom. We talked for about two hours that night. Just We laughed together. We, we shared embarrassing moments together. We shared, no one's going to tell you this, but this is true together. And it was in the midst of that we said, now, protecting each other emotionally, protecting each other uh, physically in marriage is going to be about sharing. I'm temptable here. How do we make sure we can prioritize this together? Because your appetites are going to be different. And how do you adapt to that? How do you compromise on that? And how do you honor each other on that? I said, and then when you stumble, when you do give in to lust, do you want to have the kind of marriage where you hide from each other? Or hearing about your husband's temptation, your wife's temptation, is that going to destroy you? How are you going to have a backup plan when you give in to temptation? I have a relative who is definitely afraid that her boys are going to lust. I'm like, too late. <laughs> but she's got such a battle plan to have her kids stay faithful to marriage, and that's certainly one of my desires as well, and I've certainly tried to model that, and we talked a lot about that. Um, but I've also said to this friend of mine, this relative, like, it's not the end of the world. And I've told all my kids, you need to have a, an ideal, and then you need to have a backup plan, which is if it doesn't happen, if you don't hit that ideal, whatever the subject is, how do you get back to grace so you're not living in fear and condemnation and shame all the time? And so here I want to shift to another part of the Bible, and this is King David. And he has just done some horrible, I mean horrible things. He's killed somebody. It was the man or the woman he was sleeping with. It was not his wife. And it's his, I think at this point it's his fourth wife. So this guy is far left plan A. 
But notice how, and God put this in the Bible, he knew how to craft a backup plan. How despite how he screwed up, messed up, made mistakes, how to get back. And there's four steps to this real quick. First one is we need to know how to repent of the belief behind the behavior. Now the word repent is kind of a religious word. You see it on the back of like old church buses. Repent! You're like, man, that bus is like 40 years old. It should say, repaint! Right? It should say, repaint that thing. They haven't fixed that bus up in forever. But repent actually comes from a really unique metanoia. Uh, is the word in Greek, which, which comes from where we get metamorphosis. So to repent is to change or metamorphosize your thinking about something. So what I thought when I had this desire is that this thing, this drink, that relationship, that would meet that need. So that illegitimate thing would meet my legitimate need. I got into it and it did temporarily, but then it started producing death all around me. So I need to repent or change my thinking metamorphosize my thinking about this thought about myself about god about the situation so that's the first stage of how you get back you say okay i give in to pornography it's not just something i did i need to repent god i didn't honor you i turned pleasure into the source of my of my uh, comfort god i repent i I want you to change my thinking here to recognize the needs and the consequences because i thought it was only hurting myself i thought it wasn't a big deal it's a pattern i've been practicing for 20 years whatever it is God, change my thinking. Here's how David says it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. But look what he recognizes. Against you and you only have I sinned. Repenting is recognizing it's not just this thing. It's that you took that thing and you made it into God. Instead of God becoming your source of strength or power or might, This thing, the bottle, became your medication. This website became your medication. This gossip became your medication for the loneliness inside. So a backup plan is one, changing, repenting, metamorphosizing your thinking to say, oh, I took something else and made it my God for the day or the hour. The second step, David goes on to say, is that we need to recognize grace covers shame and guilt. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me that you may be found just when you speak. And this is where the message of the Bible is so unique, different from every other religion, that you can be washed of everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. Which people go, yeah, well, if you did that, the people just do whatever they want because they're washed. Whatever they do, everything goes. No, no. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of grace. When you realize that somebody would wash you cleanse you give you a clean slate that you could be accepted not based on what you do but based on what jesus has done and that's permanent and it's secure no longer are you motivated by fear well if i do this i'm going to hell if i do this god's going to punish me no no yeah now you're in a love relationship because he loves me because he washed me because he covered me i want to please the one who made me pleasing Oh, I messed up again. But thank goodness you already forgave me for this. So I just want to bring this up and say, I did it. I'm wrong. I need forgiveness. But the guilt and shame get yanked out because it's already been forgiven. And now I can stop hiding it and rationalizing it and justifying it and instead say, yep, that's exactly what it is. It's worse than I even thought. But there's no guilt and shame because I've been washed of it by, by what the Bible says Jesus did on the cross. And because of that, I can be more open about my mistakes, more open about my wrongdoing, because the shame has been extracted from it. And you're not going to own it unless you can extract shame from it, and that's what the Bible offers. Third thing you do is not just recognize grace, but as fourth point is you receive his renewal. 
Trying harder isn't going to work. Did it work last time? No, you're doing it again. You actually need a source. That's why Camille, Emile Calliette didn't work. The source of his wisdom was himself. He wrote it. You need access to a strength, a wisdom, a courage, a patience, a love that is outside of your current resources. So part of coming back, your backup plan, is saying, God, I'm out of resources in my marriage. I'm out of resources in my willpower. I need you to tap in and give me what I don't have. Here's what David says it. Behold, your desi- you desire truth in my inward parts. You want me to be truthful, but I haven't been. And in the hidden part of me, you make me to know wisdom. I need you to help me know wisdom in my deep inner parts that, that I didn't listen to and that talked me into this. Create in me a clean heart. Not I'm going to create my own clean heart. I've already messed that up. I need you to create in me, you do the work, a clean heart. I need you to renew my will to want the things you want, to think the things you think, to feel the things you feel. God, if I'm going to get back... I can't get back on my own. I need you to renew me, to change me, to restore to me the joy of even wanting to do the right thing. And then lastly, will you reach out for help? Will you reach out for help? Behold, you desire truth. Restore the joy of my salvation. Again, this ended up in the Bible. Like if you were the editor of the Bible, would you say, hey, you know that guy who killed uh, the woman, the husband of the woman he was sleeping with? Let's cut that psalm out. You know, I think we can do without that in the Bible. God kept it in. Why would he keep it in? Because he knows that when somebody makes mistakes and has a path to get back, everybody can identify with that. Can you identify with point one? I've made a plan and I'll never give in. Uh, I think it's a good idea. I probably should have a better plan. But I can't really identify with making a plan and never giving in. The reason God included this in the Bible is because he knows we do give in. And he wanted to show there's a backup plan, a way back to where we need to be. And the gospel, grace, the main message of the Bible is exactly that. God gives you truth. This is going to cause death if you do it. It's going to tap into something in you that leads you to something unmanageable. But even once you do it, I want you to know there is a way back. You can be restored. You can be extracted of that guilt and shame. And I am waiting for you. I am waiting for you and I'm not, I don't love you less. I just want to be in this with you and near you as you go through it. And isn't it true that every time you're struggling with something, you feel like you're the only one who's ever struggled with this. And then somebody mentions at the country club, on the golf course, somebody mentions in a small group, somebody makes a joke and you realize, oh wait, it sounds like there's a hint of truth in that. And then maybe as you have the conversation, they admit that they struggle with fill in the blank. Or they feel alone. They feel like marriage is difficult. Or they feel like, and you're like, oh, I'm not the only one. And when they reach out and talk about how they're trying to incorporate truth in their struggle, you're like, oh, I thought I was the only one. Right? You see, the battle can be won before the battle has begun. But losses provide for a larger victory. You're going to have losses. Every good movie, right? The hero doesn't just come against the main bad guy at the very first scene and kills him. You're like, oh, the movie's over, about five minutes. No. 
Every good movie, the good guy comes up against people who, you know, he takes a smack here, he takes a smack there. The losses, the hurts, the struggles, then by the time you get to the crescendo of the movie, and he's like, oh, wow, despite everything he's taken on, despite the losses he took, despite the beatings he took, he still came and defeated the bad guy, right? The losses helped you understand the greatness of the hero. And the same thing is true of grace. The battle can be won before the battle has begun. But even in your failings, when we miss the mark, grace abounds even more. When we go on the wrong path and we find there's a way back, grace abounds even more. And no matter the losses, no matter the difficulty, whole time it was like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I was supposed to not be selfish. Surprise, thank you for that. Let me write that down. But I did give in to selfishness. But what you find is that grace continues to play a higher and higher and higher place in your life. And then you realize that grace isn't a thing, it's a person. And the person of grace is Jesus. And he says, I want to help you create some battle lines. I want to teach you what's trying to destroy you. But I want to teach you there's always a way back. So the decision you have to make is who's going to be first in your life? Me or yourself? Well, we hope the Bible and your understanding and getting into it can be exactly that, a journey to being less selfish and more selfless. Uh, To help with that, we know, again, it's a difficult time to be alive and temptations around us more than ever before, especially for our kids. Uh, We have some opportunities coming up. I want to let you be available. I'll let you know they're available. Uh, In your programs, we've got an insert called Family Night. Uh, Dan Martin is going to be with us next week talking about specific Internet strategies to use to protect your kids and those in your family and yourself. Uh, We also have some opportunities. Um, We're going to have a dean of UC is going to talk to our junior high kids about the implications of what you put on your social media sites to being hired later in life. So a great seminar there for families. Another uh, couple family nights about just how to do family better, how to connect, how to have real conversation with your kids. So if that can be helpful for you, we want to again show you how the Bible can be a smart book of ancient wisdom that still applies today. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week as we continue our series on Smart Book. Thanks so much. (laughs) 